0: Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Chris Hallinger. I've been following Chris's journey for a while and was so looking forward to learning more. We discuss her personal journey of both living with cancer and creating a movement for change with her brilliant charity, Copperfield. Chris's courage and strength shine through as she talks of using her own experience to empower future generations of women with life saving knowledge. Speaking to Chris left me feeling full of admiration for a woman who has shown the utmost resilience and adaptability in life and I think everyone should hear her story. Her letter to her younger self is so incredibly emotional and I feel absolutely privileged that she shared her words with us.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your
0: frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street from the Kitchen Table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK Ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs with thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Chris. I can't tell you how lovely it is to meet you it's a shame it's virtually but i'm looking forward to talking to you so much today i know we've been back and forward and we've managed to make it happen and i'm actually quite in awe of you all that you've achieved you're a trailblazer for future generations your message and your work with copperfield and i'm just so happy to see your gorgeous face today
2: ah oh, thank you so much Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm so glad we finally get to do this. I think it says a lot about two women who are very busy who have to try and find the time to talk.
0: It does. Now, I'm having a cup of tea at the moment at home. Where are you today and how have you been keeping in these strange times that we're recording in? I, too, am at home. I am drinking a cup of green tea. It's pretty grey outside.
2: Recently, we've had beautiful weather, but I'm in Cornwall. I'm a stone's throw away from the beach. I'm in Newquay. I live and work from home and that hasn't really changed much. So lockdown hasn't affected me, I guess, as it might for a lot of other people, because my home is my work too. Yes. I guess the difference is that I haven't been going up to London at all. So it's kind of strange, but in a way quite nice because I've been really lucky. I've got a little garden, but also I can walk to the beach. So, yeah, I've been lucky.
0: I'd love to start this conversation right at the beginning because you grew up in Germany and you're a twin. And I'd love to know what those early years were like. Well, I grew up in a really small town on the
2: North Sea coast. I mean, I have to say that my child was very idyllic. I spent a lot of time outside and I loved my German schooling I was a very German kid, you know, I moved to England when I was 10, but I was a very German kid. My mum would speak English to us. I would a lot of times speak German back to her. It felt very weird to speak English. And the school system is quite different. You don't have a school uniform and you get home by lunchtime. So you have lunchtime with your family. But no, I have to say, I love that I'm half German. And I love that I grew up in Germany.
0: It is a very different system, isn't it? It's yeah. one that is far less relaxed. Yeah. Did you find it was hard to adjust when you came to the UK?
2: Oh, so hard. Like, I was a kid who didn't deal very well with change anyway. And so, like, I just took it all on the chin thinking, oh, this is fine. Yeah, I'll make new friends and it'll be all be fine. So that's all the focus that I had. And then as soon as I started my first day at school, I was like, this is hell. I hate this. Like, why? Why am I having to speak English all the time? I just really underestimated how hard it was going to be. But then, I mean, who can blame me? I was only 10 years old.
0: Exactly. Yeah,
2: it was a huge adjustment. And then suddenly one day I woke up and I think I just thought I was English. And I was suddenly not that German girl anymore.
0: So you moved when you were 11 years old and you've always been very close to your twin sister, Maron. And at the age of 18, when you finished school, you both decided that you were going to do something different. Take that year out. And you went travelling not long after your first trip you discovered a lump on your breast. Am I right in saying this? You went to your GP and you were told that there was nothing to worry about. And so you left it and you went off to China for another adventure. Yeah. And it wasn't long after that that you noticed that there was something different again happening. Can you tell me about what this time was like and what actually happened? I was 22 when I first discovered the lump, so... When we were 18,
2: everyone else was told to go to university. But thanks to our mum, who kind of instilled this passion for travelling, we always knew that after school we would go off and see some of the world. And Australia seemed like a good choice, as any. And then even then, when I got back, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to go to university. But eventually I did an HND, which was a total DOS in travel and tourism. (laughs) This gives me some qualifications for saying that I could work in the travel industry I scored myself this internship in China. Yeah. And I was working for a Chinese-French travel agency, which is like the worst combination. I didn't know they existed. Neither did I. That was quite the challenge. But that's when I first discovered this very painful lump and hard area in my boob. And I had no idea how long it had been there. I hadn't been checking myself. So I didn't know, oh, this is new for me. This is normal for me. I didn't know anything. And so when I went to the GP off the back of my mum telling me to... They said it was normal, which put my mind at rest. And it's what I wanted to hear. And so I went off traveling. It wasn't until the symptoms got worse. That I thought, I don't know if this is fine. And it wasn't until I got home. I thought, oh, I'm going to go back to the GP. It was a different GP this time. And he said, I'm not worried about this. You're too young to have something as serious as breast cancer. And he didn't even examine me which is the most baffling thing of all. Mm. It's the most obvious thing that you'd think a doctor would do, but yes. he just said, well, you are examined, and we decided it was fine. So I think if it wasn't for my very pessimistic mum, I wouldn't have done anything about it. She just wasn't convinced that this was nothing. I went back and said, look, you need to refer me. This is something that I am worried about now. And they were like, okay, well, let's refer you to the specialist. But because I was under the age of 30... I was referred under
0: non-urgent rules. So how long was it till you were seen? Well, because, again,
2: my mum, being the naggy mum that she was, and still is, she said, you're going to call up and ask for a cancellation. And even then, he was really blasé about it and asked me some questions about periods and asked me about the pill. And, and again, like it's very likely that he asked me how long the lump had been there and I couldn't answer it. He said, well, you've only just come off the pill. Let's wait for three weeks.
0: My goodness.
2: I just thought, well, he's a specialist. Surely he knows what he's doing. So I dutifully waited another three weeks and obviously nothing improved. And in that time, I went out on a night out with some friends and I woke up the next morning after this night out and I just noticed this like damp patch on my front and it was bloody orange color. This liquid had leaked out of my nipple in the night and it had completely covered my T-shirt. So that's how bad it had got. And that's how desperate it needed to get for them to do something about it. And so after those three weeks, I went back and said, clearly you're doing something now. And they said, yes, we're going to do a mammogram and we're going to do a biopsy.
0: You got a result that was exactly the opposite of what everyone had been saying, that you had breast cancer that the cancer had spread to your spine yes and that it was incredibly serious what was that period of time like how did you even manage receiving such devastating news
2: There was nothing anyone could say nothing anyone could do to do anything like to make that situation okay you just go into the mode of i need to get better So the next thing they then say is, these are the action points. So what we're going to do next is this. And then after that, we're going to do that. And then that. And then that's all you start focusing on is, well, they're telling me I need to do this. And that will hopefully make me better. And then once you have those things to focus on, what else can you do Mm. but think about getting better? I didn't have a job. I was living back with mum. I had no one to notify that my life was about to change because nothing about my life was changing apart from that I was ill. Right. It was not like I had children to tell. I had no boyfriend to tell. Like there was nothing. All I could do is gather people around me that I knew could, I don't know, distract me, keep me buoyant, keep my spirits up. That's all you can do. And you try and get through one day and then suddenly it's the next day and then suddenly it's the next day. And because the cancer had already spread, the focus was on, Treating the pain more than anything. So it becomes sort of palliative care. It comes, let's make a comfortable care, which is kind of depressing if you think about it. Mm -hmm. But in a way, it makes sense because I was suffering from the symptoms of the cancer in my spine. And yes, we were going to start other systemic treatment. But in that moment, all I cared about was like not being in pain. So I had to have some very intensive radiotherapy to my spine, which caused a lot of nausea and a lot of bowel issues. And then I started chemotherapy. And I just kept thinking over scenarios of times in my life. What if someone had told me at that point that cancer could happen at my age? What if someone had told me to check my boobs? Mm. And I just couldn't help but think that it seemed so wrong. And I guess that's when my mind went into research mode. And I started Googling and talking and talking and talking to people about what had happened to me and how it could have been avoided.
0: It's just unbelievable that you start to very quickly push this into a purpose, mm-hmm. something that had to come out of it. Mm-hmm. You wanted to come away from these negative emotions that I can only imagine were swamping your mind, yeah. um, the injustice of all of this. Yeah. And you pushed it into these thoughts about really taking control. Was it important to take control at that point in time for you? Absolutely.
2: I think everything that had led up to my diagnosis, I was this passive patient who took every answer that was given to me, accepted everything. And I just thought, no more. And I think added to that was also the fact that I'd just come out of a relationship where I was with someone who made me feel worthless, made me feel like I was nothing. Mm. And I just thought, no, no longer am I just going to accept it so quickly. And I just thought, well, I need to be in control of the situation in some way. I know I can't control the cancer cells as such, but I can control how I feel about what's going to happen next. I can control the people that I'm going to have surrounding me during this. I can control the food that I put in my body. I can control what treatment I'm going to have next. And that, I mean, I didn't come straight away. The treatment thing was a big thing to learn because at first I was like, I'll take anything. I'll do anything. Let's give me the most aggressive shit you've got. Like, let's do it. It's only in later years that I discovered that it doesn't have to be that way. It's what's best for my quality of life that matters more than anything. But I was learning so much at the time and I was learning so much about wherever I could get control, I would take it.
1: Mm. And I think
2: that definitely helped. And I am really proud of my strength to jump into Copfield and the need for the charity and all the rest of it. But it's only been in recent months, which is weird to admit, that I've realised how I never gave myself time to breathe. Mm. I never allowed myself space to acknowledge what was really happening to me, just coming out of a really horrible relationship. And then jumping straight into this next challenge in life. And then as soon as I was diagnosed, I started the charity. Yeah. Like at some point you're gonna combust. Yeah. I definitely think I never had a breakdown as such over the years, but I there were moments of time where I thought, that happened because I never allowed myself to breathe. Yeah, I thought I was writing the book to help others, but more than anything, it's helped me.
0: I wanted to go back to where you started to then build this idea of Copperfield. And you went on to win a Pride of Britain Award a few months later, which is just astonishing mm-hmm. because it wasn't long after Copperfield had just become registered as a charity and I read we that weren't you, even you weren't even a charity <laughs> no, so no. you know so you're talking about sort of jumping in and then suddenly you're winning awards and it's not even a registered charity and I read that you actually received charity status the same day that you woke up after your mastectomy operation yeah, yeah. it's just unbelievable here you were only a few months after this devastating diagnosis you're 23 and yet you'd already started a charity, a mastectomy, you're winning a Bride of Britain award. It seems to be at this point that you had this mission, didn't you, to raise awareness of breast cancer within young people because you felt that this story needed to be told because it wasn't being told that you can get breast cancer you can get cancer as a young person and i love the fact that you initially went to a festival yes. to sort of capture the people that you very much wanted to speak to yeah what was those beginning days like like how did you come up with the name and and go i'm going to go to a festival and talk about breast cancer I think a lot of charities start from some
2: anguish, some personal anguish, and my story is no different. It started because there was a massive need, and I soon realised that what happened to me shouldn't happen to others, so no one should be told that their breast cancer can't be cured because it was found late. There shouldn't be this ignorance that breast cancer doesn't happen to young people. When I thought about it, I start asking the people in my life who are my age too. And I said, well, did you know you should check your boobs? Are you checking your boobs? Did you know you could get breast cancer? And everyone would say the same answer. Like, no, absolutely not. And um, the only reason we went to the festival is because we were going anyway. Right. We'd had one meeting about Copperfield where we decided, oh, well, let's do something. Let's call it Copperfield. And the only reason the name stuck is because, well, I suggested it. And um, people don't want to disagree with you just after you've been diagnosed with cancer like they're not going to say that something's a shit idea <laughs> so I think um had I not had cancer it might not even be called copperfield it might be completely different but people in my life were so keen to help me they were like yeah I'm on board do whatever charity to me at the time felt so old and so stagnant yes. and so not what I wanted copperfield to be yeah but then I thought well if no one does anything about it that's never going to change. So maybe we could be the charity that maybe has a different attitude. Yes. We just happened to be going to this festival anyway. We wrote to the organiser and said, we're going to come with a gazebo and some people and some stickers and we're just going to start talking to them about boobs. And like, we did not expect them to say yes, but they said yes. We had nothing. We had someone who had cancer who was very determined and didn't want no for an answer. And they let us come and experiment on something that we knew could save lives And, you know, to this day, I'm grateful that they gave us the opportunity, you know.
0: What was that first reaction like? Because, you know, sometimes you and your mission and small businesses that might be listening and people starting things, you know, Mm. it's that wind beneath your wings, isn't it? It's that understanding that actually, I'm not mad. Now, they might have said yes to Copperfield because they felt sorry for me. But actually, I'm onto something now. Did you get that reaction?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when I could take a step back from the tent and kind of observe from afar and see that either my sister or my friends were having conversations with people about breast cancer. That's when I was just like, this is something. I mean, Holly, you know, that feeling, that feeling of like something's happening. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what this is yet, but something is happening. Yeah. I've sown a seed and something's going to bloom. It just built and built and built. I credit that festival for allowing us to come. I credit it for being the fire starter in a way. Mm. And there is this moment. So I was there with like no hair so I would started chemotherapy I wasn't drinking alcohol because I mean that would have been a dumb decision to do that yeah I was on so many meds mm-hmm. and um my sister and I took this trip on this ferris wheel and I just remember thinking like I didn't think I could feel this high like physically and mentally mm. above everything that was happening I felt above it and I felt like I was in a way for the first time in my life in control of something even though cancer is the hardest thing to be in control of
0: In the last series, I gave you the chance to win a one-to-one mentoring session with me, and I am thrilled that I'm doing the same this time. Plus, there'll be 10 opportunities to win specially tailored business mentoring sessions from the NatWest Entrepreneurship Managers. This team have coached tens of thousands of startups and business owners across the country so they know their stuff. To be in with a chance to win... All you need to do is sign up to the NatWest Business Builder using our code. The Business Builder is a completely free e-learning site full of information and advice covering everything from well-being to finance. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker for all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest, who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner.
1: Everyone knows a particularly tall woman, and chances are she struggles to find shoes big enough. I was that woman, always dreaming of fitting into the beautiful shoes, but not being able to find any I loved for my size nine and a half feet. I'm Laura Schofield, and I'm the founder of Otto and Ivy, a shoe brand for tall women in UK sizes eight to 12. It used to be that anything that was available in my size was incredibly lackluster, which is why Otto and Ivy includes fuchsia sliders, metallic flats, and delicately embroidered Western boots, all handcrafted in small, intimate factories in Italy and China. In the eight months since launching, Otto and Ivy has sold out of several styles, been featured in mainstream press, sold to customers all around the globe, and even Caitlyn Jenner was pictured wearing the Evangeline courts on a night out in Malibu. You can view the collection at OttoandIvy.com or follow the ups and downs of my journey on Facebook or Instagram at Otto and Ivy
0: Shoes. And don't forget to tell your tall friends in need of beautiful footwear. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Did that energy then just allow like a snowball? Did it just start happening? Did you feel that there was an urgency that was around your timings?
2: <laughs> oh, my God. I just wanted everything to happen then and there. We filled out all the paperwork for the Becoming a Charity and we knew that there'd be some waiting involved, but that didn't stop us from doing what we wanted to do anyway so we went to more festivals and we spent a whole summer in a field essentially talking to people about boobs it didn't matter that we didn't have charity stages at this point and that's when i won the pride of britain awards which is to this day still the most surreal situation ever because i mean i was flattered and i was honored and it was amazing and it was like the best advertising that copperfield could never ever pay for Mm. it was a moment to kind of go wow okay if people already are impressed with this just wait and see guys because When I've got something to really show for it, that's when I could feel really proud of this award because right now this is nice, but I don't really feel like I deserve it because there's a lot more to come. And they had no idea. They just thought they were congratulating me for something I'd done, which was start a blog and go to some festivals. And I was like, yeah, cool. I mean, if that's a criteria for Pride of Britain Awards these days, then wicked, but um, (laughs) but But, it wouldn't be mine. It definitely motivated me to really proved that what we were doing made sense and all that year I think I said oh if I had a crystal ball if I had a crystal ball I could look into the lives of all these girls and boys that I've spoken to in festivals because at some stage they're going to get cancer one in two of us are going to get it and I just wanted to look into their lives and go oh look at them they've caught it
0: early because at one point they remember this conversation that they had with someone in the field. So you were speaking at schools, you're speaking to universities, you're attending festivals, and you projected the three party leaders onto the Houses of Parliament to show that one in three of us at the time Mm -hmm. would get cancer. And now, as you just mentioned, I mean, it it scares the bejeebus out of me, one in two people will get cancer. And in 2010, you then ran your first media campaign. I mean, I just love this boob hijack, where you placed boob hijack stickers on boobs and pecs up and down the country, posters, statues, mannequins, and even the Angel of the North. I mean, it's amazing. And it reminds me of something you said, making mistakes is the privilege of the active. And I just absolutely love that. I mean, you were going into the unknown full pelt, weren't you? We didn't know what we were doing at all. And I think great stuff comes from complete naivety. Naivety is an absolute blessing when it comes to building anything.
2: It really is. So I wish I still had that. But anyway, at the time, like anything goes, we had nothing to lose. And having said that, we were tactical about it. We thought, well, just try and target one group of the population. And that was at the time students. And so we recruited these amazing 15 students from fifteen. 15 universities up and down the country and we set them this challenge of like hijack boobs whatever you think looks like a pair of boobs hijack it and it culminated in in october for breast cancer awareness month where we projected these boobs onto the angel of the north and that was our first projection and it was just something that students could really get behind something that they could really engage in something that could be a vehicle for fundraising as well as awareness work. And then, yeah, we've been doing student ambassador things every year and it's grown and grown. So we said, well, this is our core message use it how you want and be creative with it. And I think it's that creative license that has helped them flourish even more.
0: And engaging exactly the audience you wanted to engage in. Yeah. I've got to think that the name Copperfield is a bloody brilliant name. You also have this really relatable language too. You know, Mm -hmm. you have a fantastic tone of voice. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something to be scared of. And, you know, you really are changing the language of cancer. Mm -hmm. You have... A wonderful boob HQ as your offices. And of course you have the boobettes. Yeah. You know, it's a really phenomenal brand that you have created. Mm-hmm. You must be proud of it.
2: Yes, I am. I talk about it in such a maybe silly, nonsensical way a lot of the times because, well, I don't ever want to sound conceited, but When I think about it and look back at it properly, then I kind of think, bloody hell, we were smart and we did things right and we Mm. made really great decisions and we did a lot of things right. Mm. And that took really good level-headedness as well as silliness and really great people around me. I really didn't do this alone. Mm. I had brilliant brains around me. We had great agencies who offered pro bono work.
0: Yeah, we got lucky in a lot of times too. It's quite incredible because you're putting this subject that has been sort of taboo and certainly not even considered in the group that you were looking to start to engage with this run by women for young women. But you started then collaborating with brands. I know that there was one that you were blown away by. Tell me about that collaboration.
2: I think you're probably referring to the Vans collaboration that we did. Yes, I am. I mean, that is like a huge thing for me personally and for the charity and it was just something you know when you dream up something you think that's never gonna happen but then yeah like suddenly it does I mean that was two years in the making that was a conversation that I had with someone who then happened to put me in touch with someone who happened to put me in a conference call with someone else and then I was suddenly in the talks with Vans HQ in LA who said yes when I said it'd be really great if we had some merch that could really educate people about breast cancer and they said okay well you know our lead times are really long but leave it with us and I thought oh yeah here we go I've heard that before (laughs) two months later they were like okay well we've taken it to the next step and you'll hear from us again and I thought okay great well they've not forgotten about me and then another couple of months went by and then suddenly these images dropped into my inbox of the designs for the collaboration and I thought this is actually happening at first they wanted Different territories to support different charities. So obviously, Europe would be for Copperfield. US would support someone else. We've got a couple of charities in mind. And then they decided they were only ever going to support Copperfield. They said, "No, we don't want to support anyone else. We just want to support Copperfield." This comes from your story, Chris, and your idea. We want us to support you. And we said, um, "Okay, <laughs> only for sure," because like we don't want anyone coming to us and saying, "I'm buying this product in the US, and the money's not staying in the country." But their argument was checking your boobs is a global message so just forget about that we do not need any more convincing give us all your money and so it's awesome
0: and you had naked boobs pregnant ladies and mastectomy scars mm. on a pair of shoes yeah thanks to you yeah
2: and they're also on a pair of sliders that i've literally not taken off all summer they're so comfy and and it's so amazing and sometimes i look down and go oh my god that design is on that shoe because of an email you know
0: Because of what you thought, the bravery to write that email, the sort of fuck it tendency. You know, Mm. I have sometimes lists that's called the fuck it lists. And the fuck it lists are, I'm just going to write to that person. I'm just going to see what's going to happen. Because the worst that can happen is no reply or no. So let's do this. And we go from these wonderful moments that you had to then really... Unbelievable statistics that must blow your mind. If you are aware of Copperfield, the charity, you're 71% more likely to check your boobs each month. I mean, that's not 10%. That is 71%. And yeah. I know that you've been contacted by people over the years, seeing your campaigns, reading your articles, being engaged that have gone to their GP and have received early diagnosis. Can you tell me what it was? like that first time that that happened to you?
2: Well, I think I imagined it for so long and I willed it to happen so badly when I was on that stage at the Pride of Britain Awards, was thinking I've proven nothing yet and obviously I didn't want people to be diagnosed what I wanted was them to come to us and say you've given me a better chance of survival because ultimately that's what Copperfield has the power to do we are giving people the chance to exist long beyond a breast cancer diagnosis it's not guaranteed like is anything guaranteed in life but We're giving people the most positive, most encouraging, most uplifting courage to feel that that that's possible. And it only takes a monthly boob check to do that. Mm. It's not a big task. Mm. And so the first time we knew that what we were doing made sense and it gave everything meaning and it kind of made us go, oh, shit, all this hard work's worth it. Let's keep doing it. Was when a girl called Jenny wrote to me and said, I've just been diagnosed and I'm 26 and I wouldn't have gone back to the GP if it wasn't for you. I love talking about Jenny's story. I always talk about Jenny's story. I, I mean, I probably talk about it in every podcast that I've ever talked on. And Jenny's still a friend. She's one of our Bibets. She had her second child this year during lockdown. Mm. I guess she is our poster girl for hope. She's our poster girl for why Cobfield still exists. She is everything to us because without that initial email I'm not sure how much we would have carried on because it was hard you know Mm. it's almost like you need those little crumbs of just like okay I'm I'm gonna keep doing I'm gonna keep going and it came so early on like so that was January 2010 so we'd only been a charity officially a charity for three months we weren't expecting people my age because it is still something that's not as common as people that are older we're we're expecting people to say I'm taking this on for life this is something that I'm going to do for life and when I hit that age category where it's very likely to happen to me, I will know myself so well and I'll feel so confident it'll all be because of you guys. Like that's what Mm. we were expecting, not Mm. I've been diagnosed and I'm 26.
0: But it's interesting when you say that sort of age bracket because what you're hoping is that people grow up now with this understanding. And one of the areas in which I know that you've led... Great change is making cancer a compulsory part of kids' education. Mm. So actually putting cancer on the curriculum and making it part of the syllabus, which is firstly the most bloody brilliant idea, which actually I cannot believe hadn't happened before, which is just too scary. Mm -hmm. And it is just unbelievable news because it's happening from September this year.
2: Yeah, it should be from now.
0: I bet you're bloody proud of yourself and anyone listening right now is just sending you proud vibes. (laughs) It must have been just a real moment in time to discover that Mm. because this is your legacy, isn't it? Is it more than anything else that you've done? The fact that, you know, my son, children are going to learn about cancer.
2: Yeah, I think something that outlasts you is obviously something that, you know, you would just want that because I didn't know how much I could achieve in my time on this planet given that I had this disease. So everything that I wanted to work on, I wanted to make sure that it could sustain and it could exist without me. So that's whenever I thought about what coffee field strategy and what we were going to be putting in place, I wanted it to have a future. And also we were going to so many schools anyway. We were doing these talks in schools and I thought, why the fuck are we doing this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Excuse my language, but like, I just thought, but it's not the job of a small charity to be doing this. This is something that is going to affect every single person yeah, ever. Yeah. So surely it makes sense that we bring this into the lives of young people now and not in a terrifying way, not a you're going to get cancer, you're going to die. This is a, something that's going to very likely happen to us all is a disease called cancer. Let's talk about it. Let's get all of our thoughts out there. Let's explore it. Let's just learn what it is. And then most crucially, learn how we can, A, decrease our risks in getting it in the first place and secondly, identify ways of knowing that we've got it. Mm. Learn about the signs and the symptoms.
1: Mm.
2: Learn how our body's changing learn to get to know ourselves. For me, just having the word cancer on the curriculum was baffling that it wasn't before. And it's likely that the kids in the classroom will have a cancer story too. I was going to say. I don't know in many talks in schools anymore, but when I have, I've said, put your hands up if you know someone who's got breast cancer. And it'll be fascinating how many kids, will put their hands up, but more importantly, look around and like, it dawns on them that Fred over there know someone too and it's kind of suddenly connected them and they had no idea because it's just not talked about so for them to then probably go off go into the corridors and say i didn't know your nana or whatever had breast cancer is something that they can connect
0: over and hopefully get over you know As I just said, it's your legacy. It's something that we're thankful that you have pushed forward on this from all of us. And you've worked tirelessly to build Copperfield. And I know that you stepped back as CEO a few years ago, but you're super heavily involved in the charity. Has it been hard to find this sort of balance between your work, your health and living with cancer? So
2: the reason I was able to step back is because I felt like I'd got the charity to a place where it could exist without me. Yeah, I mean, that lifted so much weight off my shoulders and that helped me basically be able to balance it all. I don't know how you feel about this, but I just don't think founders of charities or founders of many things should be part of the organization for life. I think it can suck the life out of Mm -hmm. some organizations and certainly charities. I knew that from the start, I knew that I would be the instigator and I would be the one that would set the fire but it wasn't going to be me leading it or running it forever I knew that there were equally brilliant people out there who had similar enthusiasm similar traits like doer traits that I know could sustain the charity just as well I mean I didn't know if I would ever get to the point where yes I felt comfortable enough to do it but I didn't not think it and I believe that maybe it could happen and when it did four years ago so I'd been the charity by this point was seven years old um, amazing uh, marketing director Nat who is now the CEO she was just the perfect candidate for it yeah and I had plans to move to Cornwall I knew that the reins had to be handed over and I was just so proud to be able to say this doesn't have to be run by me 24-7 anymore
1: mm.
2: I'm so glad that I got to get some balance back. I managed to have that space that I never allowed myself to have back in the day. And I felt so lucky that I was still around and well enough to appreciate that. I'm lucky. It's been 11 years now since my diagnosis. Most people don't get that long. And now what I'm seeing through is pure simplicity. I'm like, if I can get even happy and happy each day with pure simplicity, then I fucking nailed it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you, you fucking nailed it. And you had a tattoo, didn't you, to sort of symbolise this yeah. sort of balance, didn't mm. this? Tell mm-hmm. me about this tattoo, because it's something that feels very poignant.
2: I mean, I was never really into tattoos, so I don't know why one day I decided, oh, I'm going to get a tattoo. But um, after my mastectomy in 2009, I didn't have reconstruction, so I had no new boob put there. But I have this long scar that runs halfway across my chest. And I thought I'd make a feature of it, so the lovely fern designed me an image of a tightrope walker who i call tina who walks along the scar who is balancing life you know she's balancing copperfield she's balancing life with cancer but she's looking bloody great doing it i guess that symbolizes me it's just like just fucking keep going stay balanced and don't let stuff fall but if they do it doesn't matter because you still look great yeah <laughs> you see a lot of mastectomy tattoos that I use to cover up the scars but I, I've made a feature of mine and I love it every now and again I look down at Tina and go alright still going good
0: <laughs> and, and it was called Tina wasn't it because is it right that your sister said well that's what everyone sort of slightly gets your name mixed up with you, I love how much research you've done Holly you're bloody great at this my mum
2: called me Kristen but I, because I was born in Germany, it, it was immediately changed to Christine, because that's how they pronounced the word Christine. And then when I moved to England, I assumed my name was Christine, because that's all i had been called in my life. Yeah. But no one could understand that, given that there's no fucking E on the end of it. <laughs> and Marin likes to joke that, for some reason, people sometimes add an A to the end of my name for no reason whatsoever. And so she shortened Christina to Tina, because... I don't know, but she likes calling me that.
0: And that's your relationship that you've had with your wonderful sister who oh, yeah. has been by your side through not only your childhood and, yeah. you know, coming over to England and you could see her in your classroom, mm-hmm. but also throughout this entire journey with Copperfield. And yes. I work actually with my sister for the last 16 years and she was a third employee at Not On The High Street. She's a co-founder of Holly & Co. and And I know that, you know, your mum speaks of your bond like, you're married basically. And I read that you gave her away at her wedding. Yes. That must have been a really beautiful, poignant moment for you. It really was. It was one of those moments where you think, do you know what? If it all ended
2: now, I'd, I mean, I'd be a bit annoyed. I'd be a bit disappointed, but I'd be like, do you know, I've peaked. I understand life. I understand joy. Get me out of here. I'm cool. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I was really glad that it didn't end there. But you know, when you just know, this is what life is all about and that was walking down this sandy aisle and the beach in Cornwall and I
0: guess giving her away all year together with our friends at three we're working to make business dreams come true share your aspirations on social using the hashtag Holly and Co dreamer and who knows what will come true with a three-means business plan, I love that you can get up to £500 of benefits from their specialist partners to help give your business a helping hand. Whether you need support with accounting or building a new website, three have got you covered. Now here's a short story about those that dreamt big and flew. Someday is a disease that will take your dreams to the grave with you are the powerful words of Blake Mycoskie, founder and chief shoe giver of Tom's. Blake grew up in Texas and had already created five businesses before travelling to Argentina in 2006, where he witnessed the hardship of children growing up without shoes. With a desire to make a difference, Mikoski found locals to help him make 250 pairs of shoes. They were initially called Tomorrow's Shoes, but it was shortened to Tom's to fit better on the label. His dream was to start an ethical company that sold shoes and for each pair sold, a pair would be given to a child in need. This started the Tom's policy of buy one, give one. Back in LA, Blake tried to sell his shoes to several boutiques but was often thrown out in the process. However, a write-up in Vogue helped to tell his story and share his mission. Department stores started to place orders and that summer, the company sold 10,000 pairs. Blake rounded up the family and friends and headed back to Argentina, driving village to village, dropping off shoes in what he describes as the best trip of his life. Mikoski's revolutionary approach to build a sustainable business for social good meant that Tom's became known as the one-for-one company. They've since donated over 45 million pairs of shoes to children in need. And not stopping there, Blake extended his one-for-one policy to eyewear to provide sight to those in need. A pioneer of social entrepreneurship, Mykoski wants to inspire others to turn their passions and dreams into reality. His book, Start Something That Matters, is based on the philosophy that the most important step of all is the first step. Start something. Don't forget to share your own business dream using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about Three's business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to conversations of inspiration. I just wanted to ask, it's an odd question and, and I hope you understand what I mean. Do you feel that cancer gave your life a meaning? Do you think it saved you from places that you could have gone to or the mission of cancer has saved you from dark places? Yes, I do. I think there's so much
2: controversy around how people use cancer and say that it's potentially a gift or a real teacher. And I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, ultimately, I wish it didn't exist. I wish it wasn't killing all the best humans in the world that I've had the privilege of meeting. But for me, it came at a time when I so desperately needed an out from the life that I was leading, the self-hatred that I had for myself, the loathing, the purposelessness about my life. I mean, I think cancer was a very extreme way of getting me out of that but it certainly gave me what I needed and I can't deny it I can't deny that it gave me something that I'm so proud to call my life Mm. that comes with a caveat there were really really hard days I felt pain like you never want to experience pain you face the worst fear imaginable but amongst that and padded alongside that are all these special moments that make it all bearable and at this point in time okay and I say this point in time because tomorrow might be very different tomorrow I might get news that things are changing again and I'll be in a completely different frame of mind tomorrow but right now things are good and that's all I can hang on to Mm. that's what gets me through today and then hopefully tomorrow what I then try to say to people is it doesn't have to take cancer for you to kind of go life is worth living that thing I've been dreaming of doing, I'm going to go do it. But that doesn't negate how you decide to use your cancer. That doesn't make your cancer and your meaning out of cancer any less important or special or incredible. Mm. Because I never want people to look at me and go, well, I never started a charity. I never had those epiphanies that she did. Don't expect them to come because of a charity. Expect them to come in other ways too. Yeah, Be open to it and let it maybe
0: come. What brilliant, brilliant, brilliant advice. My gosh, I'm tingling. I feel so inspired by you. You are everything I thought you were going to be. And you know, I follow you. I love your Instagram. I sort of really, really, yeah, have been looking forward to this moment. Yeah, me too. I end all my interviews with this analogy of a roller coaster, sharing sort of your highs and lows. And I'm wondering what you would say has been your biggest low so far on this journey. My biggest low
2: is probably the unknown and facing the unknown too many times and not knowing what to do in those situations. Much like many roller coasters, there then has to come a high, right? So I start climbing in uh, out of there. But it's those fearful moments of I'm in my bed at night, it's complete silence. I mean night times are the worst for situations like this in particular, but I don't know what treatment to do next, and I don't know who to speak to next. Mm. That is the worst fear you could be in because you just do not know what's going to happen next. But then I somehow find the energy to go, well, maybe I'll call this person. Maybe they'll have something useful to I can know about. But in that moment, in
0: the middle of the night, you can't call anyone. Mm. That is a low. That is a low. But you come out, as you said, on this greatest high. And I'm wondering if one of your greatest highs, or I'd love to hijack your greatest high and ask, writing your book Mm. at the moment, tell me about this and your greatest high. But I just wanted to, I'm I'm fascinated. Do you
2: know what? I think the book, I hope that it will become my greatest high. (laughs) Right
0: now, I'm not so sure,
2: but it's hard, (laughs) isn't it? Writing a book is bloody hard. It's been a real journey of self-discovery that I didn't realise I was going to have or need or wanted and actually I've changed the title a little bit so well I wanted it to be called how to glitter a turd but the more I was writing it the more I was thinking the how is so irrelevant because what I'm not saying is I'm not being I'm not prescribing how anyone does this Mm. I'm explaining how I've done it and so the importance is on purely glittering a turd it's a fact I've done it and yeah the more I wrote it the more I realized that I was analyzing my life in the most profound ways that I never thought I could. And, you know, if that's what book writing is, then great. Like everyone should do it because it'll make you think <laughs> stuff about your life that you never have. And I think writing it during a global pandemic is something else as well.
0: Like whew, yeah, me and my brain have become very close <laughs> over the last few months. That might be your greatest high. Yes. But if I hadn't of hijacked it, tell me what that would have been. I'm just worried that people get so bored of me saying the same stuff over and again.
2: But hopefully no one's heard this before. I just can't deny that it was Jenny's email. You know, I can't deny that Mm. when I think back at all those moments that made sense in my life and that where the penny dropped enormously was Jenny's email. And then consequently saying that she's had another very healthy baby boy this year. And that's 10 years on, you know, there's life beyond cancer.
0: Bless you, Chris. Thank you so much for today. And it's just a privilege hearing your story firsthand. And you just got buckets of resilience and the role model that you have now become. I just find you it's a phenomenal woman and you're going to have a lasting impact on generations. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. It's been a joy. It's been so nice to speak to you. This is where I hand over to you and your cat to read a letter that you've prepared to your younger self. And I don't know what it's going to say, but um, I hand over to you I wasn't sure what to say I, I didn't want to because my cancerversary
2: last year was my 10th and obviously a big one I actually wrote myself a letter that I then read out at my party with all my loved ones around me and I've changed it a little bit but I just thought what's the point in writing something brand new when I've already written something that I think is perfect for this and I hope you agree
0: I can't wait to hear it okay here we go
2: dear Chris my girl You are at the foothills of something really rather shit. But you already know that, so I'm here to tell you all the things that are good about your diagnosis. I know that sounds utterly ridiculous to you right now, but stay with me. You are frightened. Of course you are. But in the darkest of moments, I want you to remember one thing. Life will go on in the most spectacular of ways. I need you to hold on to that. I need you to accept that life will drastically change. And although you fear change so much, it will all I mean, mostly be good. Uncertainty is so scary. Boy, do I know that. But it will make you seize many opportunities. And by that, I mean many glorious fuck it moments. You don't know this right now, but you have all the strength you need to survive cancer. It's treatments and side effects. And you will actually be glad when they finally remove your boob later this year. You will choose not to have a reconstruction. You know how during the last two years you have had a strange relationship with your body, trying to be slimmer, not really knowing why? Well, guess what, sister? You are leaving that shit behind you, along with the boy you currently love and feel so betrayed by. He will fade from your mind. Trust me, he will. In fact, love will play a huge role in your survival, but not with anyone, just with yourself. You know how Neil told you yesterday that you beat the odds getting cancer at this age, so you'd beat the odds surviving it? I hate to say this, but he is right. You see, I know you will find this very hard to believe, but you will still be alive in 10 years time. I repeat, you will still be alive in 10 years time. Take that in. The reason you find this so hard to believe is because you haven't heard of anyone who has survived this long, have you? And when you stupidly Googled mortality rates, you thought two to three years was the average and the norm. But you are not the norm. You are far from it. And now I need you to imagine that the following things will happen. Trust me on this one. I know it's hard, but your mind and heart is open to it all. Although you may not feel like it on many days, you will get up, have a shower, brush your hair, do your makeup, put the kettle on and get on with your day. This will sometimes feel like the biggest achievement of the day and that is okay. It won't be long before you blossom into someone with a purpose, an actual real life reason to live, Chris. In fact, it will be just days before you lose all your hair to chemotherapy. And by the way, you have a great head and many people will tell you this and that will get annoying. Although Dr. Dawson just advised you probably shouldn't be jumping out of a plane anytime soon because you have a cancerous tumor on your spine, you will at some point run a 10k and then a half marathon. I can't explain this phenomenon and to be honest, you won't enjoy these events, but you will turn into quite the stubborn bitch in an effort to prove that you simply can. And although you don't enjoy running, you will rope countless friends and then hundreds of strangers into running for your charity. Yes, I said charity. It will be called Copperfield and you will come up with that name and your friends will think it's a good one. But you won't be entirely sure whether they are just being nice because you have cancer. But it sticks. Sounds like a lot of hard work, doesn't it? Well, it will be. But it will also be the best thing you will ever decide to do. And maybe even the reason you survive for as long as you do. Although of that I can't be sure. What I can be sure of is that cough feel will change the lives of many people. Not long from now you will hear from people who have been diagnosed early because of what you do. and then those messages will become a regular thing. You will make a good boss, a boss of the charity and boss of your own health. There is not a straight path to healing. You will have to take reins and navigate your way through the medical system and jump through many hoops. It will be frustrating, frightening and you'll find yourself in the loneliest of places, but you'll carry on. You won't always know why, but you do. You will realize you're a doer, not a planner, which may infuriate your staff, but you learn to appreciate people's unique ways of working and love them for it. In the midst of chemotherapy, you will meet a guy. The relationship will be blissful, sad, comforting, and then a bit shit. So you break up and you'll possibly cry more than you did when your dad died and more than you did last night. And then time will pass and you'll be okay. You will dance sober a lot. You will have a much healthier relationship with food. You won't have a baby, but then I know you were never that bothered about them anyway. And you will marvel at your friends for pushing babies out of their vaginas whilst you own two legendary cats. You won't own a house. You won't get married. There won't be a cure. Life will take on a whole new meaning. You will move to London and then to Cornwall because you will understand what you really want out of life. You will make questionable fashion choices. Some things don't change. You will be invited to 10 Downing Street with 10 of your friends, and then again three more times. You will experience pain, so much pain. You will hide your fear under a mask of positivity. You will accept death. Never before would you have felt such self-compassion. You'll make some monumental errors in judgment of people. You will have a godson named after you. You're going to like the idea of writing a book, but probably never get on with it. Lol. Did. Did. <laughs> you will see wonder in the mundane. An ITV two show called Love Island will be created which will provide you with so much joy. You will have sixty brain tumours. Maybe you didn't need to know that right now, but you should know you'll be okay. You will be so proud of the Copperfield team that you might at times feel like bursting. You will learn to love running into the cold sea. I'm not even making this shit up. Some days you won't feel like getting out of bed, so you don't. You will walk mar down the Arletter wedding. That's when you'll realise what happiness really is. You'll get honoured with an honorary doctorate in public administration. Lol, ain't that ridiculous? You'll continue to travel. Japan, Thailand, New York, Canada, Austria, Italy, Portugal. I could go on. This thing called Instagram is about to be invented, in which you share many pictures of your life. It'll become sort of addictive, but it will act as an amazing tool to show the world how you thrive with cancer. You'll get cancer on the curriculum. You think I'm fibbing, but I'm not. You will say no a lot. You will say yes and accept help from friends even though a little piece of you dies inside. Talking of friends, they will come and go, and that's okay. You will love watching your friends live their lives. You will make many new friends, and this may sound very strange. You may just thank cats for them. The death of your dad taught you so much about life and its fragility, but it will hit you even harder when some of the best people you have met die. Those 10 years won't make the uncertainty and fear disappear, but you will learn so many ways of coping. When you hit 33 and are days from celebrating your 10-year milestone, you will come up with an idea to write this letter because you know what a difference it could have made to you on the awful day you found out your cancer was incurable. And maybe another frightened girl, who in the same position as you, will read it and sleep just that little bit easier tonight. Christine, life will go on, and whilst your 10-year cancerversary is so hard to comprehend, just believe in endless possibilities. You will think back over the 10 years and wonder in wonder and amazement and realise how far you've come. Whilst I can't promise a life beyond a decade, I can assure you your life will already be more than complete.
0: Oh my goodness. I just can't thank you enough for sharing that with us because you say one in two of us will be diagnosed and To hear you talk about this so vulnerably, so beautifully, with such humour, is just unbelievable to know that there is hope and that there are people like you who is willing to share with us the real stuff. And um, it's beautiful. And I wish you so many fuck it moments for the next decade. And I just... um, It was just a really moving, beautiful piece of writing there. And so I cannot wait to read your book. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, Chris. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Before you go, don't forget that to be in with a chance to win a 90-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest's Business Builder. It's packed full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash hollytucker. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.